1 Samuel chapter 30 and 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink. They gave him a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage, and they shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Aroer, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremielites, 
in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Bor-Ashan, and Athak, in Hebron, and all the places where David and his men had roamed. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when we last heard of David, he had just been released from the service to the Philistines as the Philistines were marching off to battle with the Israelites and were left wondering, what would David really have done? If he had gone into battle on the Philistine side, would he have actually fought against the Israelites or would he have, as the Philistines feared, turned and attacked the Philistines along with the Israelites? We don't know because by providence he was let off from that. And so we assume that now he's simply going to go home, travel the 60 miles back home to Ziklag and kind of wait things out. The last time we heard of Saul, he was having communion. He was having a meal with a witch who had called up a vision of Samuel. And Samuel had told Saul, you're going to die and your sons on the same day. And now we pick up that story. But we find that there was a a twist in the story. Because when David and his men headed back to their town of Ziklag, they traveled those 60 miles. It took several days to get there. When they arrived, they found that the Amalekites, do you remember the Amalekites? The Amalekites, they were a, a nomadic people that could sweep in and, and like lightning attack and then disappear into the wilderness. Well, they had done just that. They had come in and they had destroyed Ziklag and they had taken all its inhabitants and all its possessions. All of David's 600 men, they lost everything and they lost everyone. Now, remember that Saul's first big mistake was not to do away completely with the Amalekites. 
And here they are once again. They weren't exterminated, and so here they are once again threatening to exterminate Israel and Judah. And these Amalekites likely knew that they had an opportunity. The word probably got out that Israel and the Philistines were fighting once again. Well, what would that mean? That would mean that the Philistine cities and that the the Judean cities, the Israelite cities, were unoccupied, or at least the men were off fighting, and so they had an opportunity to swoop down and to take away the women and the children. David and his men, when they got back, they had the natural response, and it's a very poignant description. In verse 4, it said, David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. Have you ever faced that kind of a grief? You weep until there are no more tears. That's how they, how they wept. They couldn't weep anymore. They, they had no more tears. They, they didn't have strength even to weep anymore. And they didn't know what had become of their loved ones. They knew they were gone. They knew they had been carried off as, as captives, as hostages, but they, they didn't know if they were dead or alive. Now, we do read, we have the advantage of reading, that the author tells us that they had not been killed, but they did not know that at the time. And to make matters worse, there was a mutiny brewing in verse 6. David was greatly distressed. He'd lost his two wives. All of his men had lost their families. They'd lost all their possessions. Sounds kind of like Job, doesn't it? And it says, David was greatly distressed in verse 6, and the people talked of stoning him because the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. So David was really utterly alone. His men were turning on him. He was bereft of his wives, uh, and he had no possessions. He had no people. He was utterly alone. And utterly alone and facing this rebellion, we have a little description here, just one line of what David did. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We've heard something similar to this in the past. If you go back to chapter 23, verse 16, you read that when David was fleeing from Saul, Jonathan, David's son, he came to David and he found him and he strengthened his hand in the Lord. And I want you to put these two things together. There was an occasion when when David was not quite alone, when he had a brother, he had a faithful friend who could come, and when David was weak, this faithful friend could strengthen David's hand in the Lord. But now we have another situation in which David was utterly alone. There was no Jonathan, and even his own men had turned on him. There was no one to strengthen him in the Lord. And so what does it say that David did? It said that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, we have seen through, throughout 1 Samuel that David is unique. He was the, the anointed future king of Israel, and none of us are the anointed future king of Israel. But, but we do relate to David, because David, first and foremost, was a believer in, in God, in the true God. And that's why David's experiences many of which he's recorded in the Psalms, resonate so deeply with us because they, they, they pattern for us, they, they show us how to respond as believers, and particularly when the bottom falls out. And that's what happened here. The bottom completely fell out of David's life. He was left with, apparently, with nothing. But he had one thing. 
and only one thing, his relationship with the Lord. I hope you never get to that point. I, I hope that you're always surrounded by others. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ does, doesn't it? I hope you're always surrounded by others who will strengthen your hand in the Lord. But there, there may be those times when in, in the quiet of the night and the darkness of the night in suffering, when it seems like it's too great, when you've wept until you have no strength to weep anymore, you will have to do this as well for your own soul to strengthen your hand in the Lord. There's no promise for believers that the bottom will not fall out of our lives at one time or another, but God does give us strength in our weakness. Paul tells the Ephesians and all of us, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So this is a, this is a shall we say, a habit? This is a, a discipline, this is a practice that we believers need to, need to develop to be able to, to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And, and one of the ways he did that, we see in verse 7, was David drew near to God through the one remaining priest. There was one priest left, and the priest was the, the go-between between believers and their God. He was the one who could intercede and and. You remember that Saul had wiped out the priests, but one had gotten away, and he went to David. There was one remaining priest, and David went to God through the one remaining priest. And we don't really know details about how the ephod worked, or exactly even what the ephod was. But it looks like the ephod was a way to ask yes-no questions of God. And that's what he asks here. He asks yes-no questions. He says, shall I pursue after this band? It's a yes-no question. Uh, Shall I overtake them? A yes-no question. And he got somehow through the the one remaining priest and the ephod, he got the answer. And the answer was was definitively positive. And it says that uh, the answer was this in verse verse 8. Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And this is a, in, in, in the, the language here, it's, it's overtaking you shall overtake, and rescuing you shall rescue. This is emphatic. And, and so that's what David purposed to do. As Christians, we don't have a definitive way of getting yes, no questions answered. Sometimes through providence, we'll, we'll get no uh, answers very definitively. If we're asking for something and, and, and it doesn't happen, then, then we get a no answer. But the yes answers are, are not so clear oftentimes. But we have something even better. We have one remaining priest through whom we may draw near to God. In all of our circumstances, even if we cannot get the, all the answers that we want, we can get the, the access to God that that one remaining priest can give us. This is the language that we find in in Hebrews chapter 4. Since, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. When, When do we need that sort of exhortation? When the bottom falls out. That's when we need that exhortation. That's that's the whole background of the letter to the Hebrews. They were suffering. They, they were being persecuted. Their, their goods were being plundered. And 
And he says, we have a high priest. So hold fast to the confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Sometimes we might feel in our suffering that we don't know how to get to God, but we have a way to get to God, and he is Jesus Christ. He is the remaining high priest, the only one, and we must hold fast and draw near, hold fast and draw near, because we have such a high priest. Now, picking up the story, David received the yes, and so David took off with his 600 men. They had just marched for days, 60 miles. They had just wept until they had no more strength to weep. And then they took off on another mission, a military mission. In verse 9, it, it says, they, they set out the 600 men. They came to the brook Besor, but two of them, 200 of them, they just couldn't continue. They couldn't wade across that, that river. They, they just couldn't continue. They were exhausted, so they stayed behind. And 400 men, now the, now the, 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 the troops are reduced and and then they don't really even know where they're going. Remember, they're looking for whom? They're looking for Amalekites. Amalekites don't have cities. Amalekites are nomads. They're in the desert. They, they wander. They're looking for wanderers. But in verse 11, we find that God guided them not only through the word through the priest, but he guided them through his own providence. They just happened to find an Egyptian in the open country, needle in a haystack. They just happened to come across this Egyptian, and they revived him with food. And they asked him, and this Egyptian just happened to be a slave of the Amalekites. And he had been there, helping out, helping his master with, with all of the raids. And he, he knew everywhere they had gone, and he even mentioned Ziklag. We burned Ziklag with fire, and David said, will you take me to them? And he negotiates and he said, yes, if you will not turn me over to them when I take you to them. And David swore, and so he took him to them. Now, 400 exhausted men come. In verse 16, the Egyptian takes them to the Amalekites, and they find the Amalekites, they were spread abroad over all the land. They were a vast horde. And so we have 400 exhausted men against a vast horde. But they did have an advantage. These men, these, this vast horde, they were eating and drinking and dancing. Why? They were careless. Why? Because they knew there was no threat. They knew that the Israelites, whom they had just plundered, and the Philistines, whom they had just plundered, were at each other's throats. So they didn't need to worry about any Philistines. They didn't need to worry about any Judeans or Israelites. And so the 400 men fell upon this great horde in their probably drunken uh, uh, partying. And it says, verse 17, David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men. 
who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. This is, this is bordering on, or maybe not bordering on, this is miraculous, that they could recover all of the people that had been taken captive, and all of the possessions, and not only all of the possessions, but more of the possessions, because the Amalekites fled and left the plunder from all of the cities there for David to take back, and it was determined that that was going to be David's spoil, David's booty, David's plunder. Now, this plunder, this plunder uh, caused a problem, because when they got back to those 200 men, we find that Not all the men in David's army were of the noblest character. It says that there were some worthless men there. And when they got back, they said, take your wives, take your children, and leave. You didn't fight with us. You're not getting any of the plunder. And David handled this very deftly and very wisely. But he handled it, first and foremost, theologically. He, he made a theological declaration about what had happened. David said in verse 23, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. And even here in this narrative, there is a very striking contrast about who did what. The, the, the narrator, the author of this book, listen to what he says, verse 17. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men. Verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks. This is David's spoil. That's what the author says. But what does David say? The Lord gave it to us. Now, the author was not wrong. David was the instrument. But when you look at the the magnitude of this victory, David understood that it was not David's hand that brought that about. And so he makes a declaration. And what is this declaration? It's a declaration about God's grace. It's a declaration about God's favor. And he says, God's the one who did this, folks. This This is God's gift to us. So, so you, can't, you can't claim it just for yourselves. God has given this into our hands, and so we must not hold on to it as if it were our own doing. This is another lesson for Christians. Paul asks a very good question to the Corinthians. The Corinthians were very gifted people. They, they, were, they were really amazing people. If you would go to their church, you would say, wow, the knowledge and the, the gifts and the ability here is, is impressive. And Paul asks them in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, what do you have? What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? And that's basically what David is saying to these men. What do you have that is not a gift of God? Boil down absolutely every good thing in your life, and you you will come to the conclusion that James states, every good gift is from God. It is all grace it is all gift. It is all favor. And yes, he uses human instruments. That's not wrong. Of course he does that. That's the normal way he operates. 
But at the end of the day, the response of the believer is not, did you see what I did? But thanks be to God, glory be to God. What do I have that I haven't received? Nada, nothing, zilch, it's all a gift of God. And so that transforms our posture towards the things that God does for us and through us. They're gifts from God that we can freely share with others. And David did that. He went on freely to share those with, with the cities and the, the elders of the cities in Judah. And here the, the commentators debate about why he did this. And he might have done this for a number of reasons. Well, one of the reasons may be that they had been plundered, and he's just giving them back some of what they had lost. So it's a recompense for what they had lost. It also may simply be a, a thanksgiving, because it says that David and his men had roamed in those areas, and, and they had treated him well. And so he's saying, thank you. Here's a thank you gift from, from this booty that the Lord has given to us. And it may have also been an astute political move. These men were the elders in Judah, David knew that he was eventually going to be king, and so it was not unwise for him to, to keep the relationships going here and to give them some, some political favors. That all may be true. Those are not contradictory, but however that might be, he was open-handed with what the Lord had given to him. And that's the last we hear of David in 1 Samuel. And then we turn to Saul. And it looks like this is going on at the same time. And we read something we've read a number of times in 1 Samuel. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. This has happened over and over. Philistines were fighting against Israel. But now we read that there's a turn here. The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And then it gets worse. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. That's what Samuel had said would happen. And they pressed hard against Saul, and an archer wounded him, and he didn't want to fall into the hands, alive, into the hands of the Philistines, so he told his armor-bearer, finish the job. But his armor-bearer, like David, refused to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't do it. He said he was afraid. We don't know exactly why he was afraid. Maybe afraid to lift his hand, even as David was. And so Saul took matters into his own hands, and he committed suicide by falling on his sword. The armor-bearer joined him. And it says in verse 6, we have the, the summary of the battle. Thus Saul died, and his three sons and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And then when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, those beyond the Jordan, they saw this slaughter of the king and his heirs, they fled. And they abandoned the cities, and the Philistines came and lived in the cities. And so this was a huge loss for Israel. All the victories that had been gained up to this point, they lost it. The advantage, they lost the cities, and maybe even more. Now, there's a final note here. And I have to say, as I was, as I was reading this this past week, my eyes filled up with tears. This is so sad. Uh, that Saul would end this way and his sons and 
the Israelites who followed him. But there's a tender note. There's a tender note. We find not a tender note on the part of the Philistines. They did what victorious armies tend to do. They abused the dead. Uh, they abused their enemies. They, they found Saul, his three sons, cut off his head, sent messengers throughout the land to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. There may be a little jab here at the idols that they had to have somebody tell them what happened. They had to, they had to receive a report. There may be a little jab there. But then they put the armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. They fastened his body to the wall. But that's not how 1 Samuel ends. There's a, there's a little note of tenderness and maybe even a little note of hope because the men of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. And the valiant men, they took their, their life in their hands and they arose and they went all night and they took the body of Saul and the body of his sons from the wall and they came to Jabesh. They burned them there and then they gave them a burial under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and then they fasted seven days. Now, this is a fitting conclusion in some ways because it comes full circle. If you go back to chapter 11, we find that Saul was just named king, but he wasn't doing anything kingly yet. He was still working on his father's farm, apparently, but a crisis came up. The Ammonites had, had attacked Jabesh Gilead. And so Saul, in his first kingly act, he called all Israel to arms, and he marched to rescue Jabesh Gilead. That was Saul's first victory of many to come. And the men of Jabesh Gilead never forgot that they were saved by the hand of Saul. And so this is a fitting tribute that, that those whom he had saved would then do what they could to save him and his sons from that exposure to, to shame being hung on the wall and give them a fitting burial. Uh, this also may be something of a hat tip to Saul. We've seen Saul deteriorate, maybe even mentally, fall into paranoia and instability. We've, we've, we've seen Saul uh, uh, murder, and, and we've seen Saul go after innocent people. We, we've seen Saul's descent but this may be something of a hat tip to Saul by mentioning those of Jabesh Gilead and saying, remember the good old days. Remember how he started. As many mistakes as he committed during his life, we could say that Saul died with his boots on. Saul died doing what? Fighting the Philistines, as he was called to do. But even so, this conclusion is a sad conclusion to a largely sad book. One commentator, Ralph Davis, summarized the whole book very aptly. He said, 1 Samuel is simply a sad book of one disappointment after another. And then he summarizes it in three movements. The judgment on ungodly leadership. Do you remember Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, chapters 1 to 4? The rejection of prophetic leadership. Do you remember the people rejected Samuel, chapters 8 and 12? And then the disintegration of royal leadership. And we've traced that over these chapters 13 to now 31. However, something we should recognize is this. First in Samuel, 
were originally one book. What we're reading as the conclusion is not really the conclusion of the book. The second part is about David's reign. And we conclude 1 Samuel with David waiting in the wings, having just been favored by God and victorious. And so, what's our expectation? We're not, by the way, going to continue and do 2 Samuel yet. We may come back to it sometime later. But this is a a convenient stopping point. But what should we expect to happen from here on out? Happy days are here again. David's waiting in the wings. Saul is no more. We've been waiting chapter after chapter after chapter for David to take up his reign. Now everything is going to be okay. And it was at first. And then there was a spring when the kings go out to war. David stayed in Jerusalem. And as he was walking on his balcony, he noticed a woman bathing. And it started to unravel. And so we need to keep looking. We thought Saul was going to be it, maybe, but he wasn't. And now we come to the end of 1 Samuel, and we're sure, we know, David is going to be it. He's going to be that ideal Messiah king who's going to reign and rule over God's people in righteousness and in peace. And then he wasn't. But then Solomon comes along, wisest man ever to rule. And he starts so well, just like Saul and just like David. Then the man who built the temple ended his life building pagan temples for foreign deities. And so we keep looking and looking and looking. Maybe Rehoboam will be the one we're looking for, or Abijah, or Asa, or good King Jehoshaphat. No, not them either. What about Jehoram and Ahaziah, Athaliah the queen, Joash? No, sorry. Amaziah, Uzziah? Jotham, Ahaz? No, we need need to keep looking. Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah. How How about one of them? No, they're not it either. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah. We get to the end. None of them are that ideal Messiah King. We need to keep looking, or at least they needed to keep looking, because when we get to the first verses of our New Testament, we need look no more. We have these words there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, Messiah, son of David. We need look no 
more. The Messiah King has come. The Messiah King is coming. So look no more, but rather hold fast to the confession of him and draw near to God through him. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that we are in a time when we need look no more because Jesus, Messiah, King has come. The one whom all of those monarchs of Israel and Judah faintly anticipated and in their glorious moments prefigured and in their failures showed the need for. Oh God, I pray for all of us that in good times, but in especially in the hard ones, when the bottom seems to fall out and when we weep until we have no more strength to weep, that we would be able to hold fast and draw near to you through the one remaining priest, our Messiah, King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.